Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, lawyer Gail Davidson talks about why she and other lawyers across Canada are complaining about convoy bias in remarks made by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. Fan favorite Gino Ojik reminisces about his playing days in advance of being inducted into the BC Sports Hall of Fame, and Gino has a playoff prediction, too. And analyst Susan Martinuck takes a long, sober look at Patients at Risk, exposing Canada's health care crisis. So, let's get started. Ever so nice to have you along with us this fine-looking Saturday morning. Cloudy skies, 13 degrees, and sunshine on the way later in the day, and things warming up and picking up measurably beginning tomorrow. It is 6.17. A group of 13 lawyers have written a letter of complaint to the Canadian Judicial Council about comments by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Richard Wagner, regarding the Ottawa trucker convoy. They base their complaint on Article in the Montreal newspaper Le Devoir, wherein the Supreme Court of Canada Chief Justice said the convoy was, and I'm quoting here, the beginning of anarchy to take other citizens hostage, to take the law into their own hands, not to respect the mechanism. I find that worrying. And he goes on to say, it doesn't inspire good feelings in me. I find that disturbing. Adding the convoy was fueled again, not just by diesel, but by misunderstanding and a certain ignorance ignorance of the rule of law. Now, the complaint basically says this is hardly an unbiased person's opinion when the person giving the opinion is supposed to be eventually probably ruling on the necessity of the Emergencies Act. One of the 13 lawyers to sign that complaint is with us now. Gail Davidson joins us from Vancouver. Gail is the founder of Lawyers Rights Watch and a signatory to that complaint. Gail, good morning. Thanks for getting up early to do this. We do appreciate it very much. Good morning, Sterling. Nice to be on your show. Well, it's good to have you with us. Now, uh, I guess I have to just interject. Uh, Where does the the line get crossed in terms of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada? Because Richard Wagner is also Canadian citizen. Canadian citizens are allowed to have opinions. However, as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, it's likely he's not supposed to share those opinions with the press. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Judges, um, including the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, of course, have uh, are entitled to freedom of expression. But like many people in many professions, they ha- have to, as part of their professional duty, they have to exercise their um, freedom of expression with appropriate cautions to their profession. In the case of judges, including the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, um, they judges have to avoid um, making comments, particularly on controversial matters that would um, have the suggest or establish any kind of um, bias or prejudging of those issues. Right. Now, Gail, the, the, the nub of the argument, I suspect, is that eventually the Supreme Court is going to be called upon to rule as to the necessity of the invocation of the Emergencies Act. A lot of Canadians, myself included, think it was government overreach in the extreme, the government being ultra-secretive about its reasons and rationale for calling it in the first place. Ultimately, this could end up in front of the Supreme Court. If the, if the Chief 
just as is already indicated, he was made very personally unhappy by this experience. That's hardly an unbiased position to begin with, is it? Well, that's that's you've you've accurately identified one of the the troubling issues and one and one of the grave concerns of the people who signed the complaint is that they uh, they the 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 concern was is, is that the um, um, alleged comments of the chief justice because he may come back during the hearing and uh, during the review that the Canadian Judicial Council doesn't say or didn't say that. Right, so, right, right. I was misquoted. Right. right, sure. Right. So that the chief justice um, um, has the capacity to seriously undermine public confidence in the impartiality and the independence, not just of the Chief Justice, but of other judges, and of the capacity of the judiciary in Canada to determine not only, as you've accurately identified, Sterling, the very important issue is, was the invocation of the um, the emergency measures um, was that called for? Right. And the other issue is, 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 of course, the lawfulness of the truckers' convoy protest against vaccine mandates itself. And both of those issues, I agree with you, Sterling, are likely to go through. They are before the Canadian courts now and are likely to get to the Supreme Court of Canada. Indeed. Now, is there anything else in the complaint, in the, in the nuts and bolts of the complaint, Gail, that I've overlooked in terms of identifying what you're so upset about? No, I, I think you've, you very accurately put it. Now, um, as, you, as you know, because you've clearly carefully read the complaint, um, the complaint doesn't ask for any particular resolution. It expresses the concern and, and asks the Canadian Judicial Council to um, uh, take whatever measures are necessary. And part of the concern of the complaint is, is also because the remarks were reportedly made by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, um, any impression of having pr- potentially prejudged um, these very, very critical issues, the issues that are very critical to, to our, our whole governance system, yes. influences, um, uh, we're, we're uh, afraid of, the apparent impartiality of all judges in all Canadian courts with respect to these issues. So, um, um, it, and I think that the Canadian Judicial Council may have, this is my opinion, not the opinion of the other signatories, is going to have to grapple with the difficult issue of of how to deal with the complaint because the Canadian Judicial Council is made up, as you know, Sterling, of of 41 um, people and it's chaired by the Chief Justice. Yeah, therein lies the fly in the ointment, Gail. You made this uh, very elaborate complaint and it could go all the way to the top of the Canadian Judicial Council and, oh, right, the president of the Canadian Judicial Council is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and, oh, this is a complaint about the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. How's that one going to fall on the desk? Yes, and, and all the other members are are the chief justices and associate chief justices of all the um, uh, um, federal courts, or all the superior courts in the provinces right. and in the territories. And I, I do feel confident that they'll be able to deal with the with the complaint, but it definitely will 
take some thinking of how to do that. Gail, we've only got a minute left. How important to you is it that Canadians understand that this complaint has in fact even been made? Because, of course, the government will do its best to make it go away and sweep it under the rug. How important is it Canadians understand what, what you're trying to impress upon us here? It's of tremendous importance because it's the the, uh, the us having a judiciary that is impartial, independent, and of course competent is very central to maintaining uh, a rights-based system. And so the issue, what I'm personally as a signatory am um, hoping for, is a very vigorous discussion amongst the uh, Chief Justices and Associate Chief Justice of these issues and how they restrict um, judicial comment on um, controversial issues, both issues that are before the courts and could come before the courts. And I would really hope that it sparks uh, 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 an informed debate amongst us, amongst the public, of those issues. Well, I I think I I would like very much to think, Gail, that we perhaps have lit that spark uh, this morning. I do appreciate your getting up early on a weekend to inform us of this very important complaint, and we'll follow it closely and perhaps tap you as, uh, as things progress. I would welcome that opportunity. The the Judicial Council has has uh, told us that they they their procedure is to make their decisions in three to six months. So definitely, I'll get in touch with your producer um, and let them know when we're when a decision is is in the offing or or when any other development comes that your listeners might want to hear about. Fox with you on this first Saturday of June. Coming up in just a few days this coming Thursday, as a matter of fact, there will be an induction gala at the Vancouver Convention Center. This is from the BC Sports Hall of Fame. They have, in fact, a couple of classes of inductees to to induct into the Hall of Fame because, of course, with COVID last year, they weren't allowed to have the ceremony. So one of the inductees from the class of 2021 is... The Manawaki Mahler, uh, one of the Vancouver Canucks players to, to this very minute, uh, loved by fans of the province over. Gino Ojik will be inducted into the BC Hall of Sports Hall of Fame next Thursday. Gino's on the line this morning. Good morning, Gino. Congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you with us this morning. Uh, you're still here in Vancouver. You've lived here in Vancouver since you left with the left the team. Uh, I mean, you went on to play with uh, the Islanders, the Flyers, and the Canadians. But then you came back to Vancouver, and you've stayed, haven't you? Yeah, I used to come back every summer. I've been here since 1990. I just fell in love with the city and the people. And once I got here, I didn't want to leave. Gino, you've become over the years uh, very much a role model, a mentor of sorts for Indigenous kids, First Nations hockey players and children from coast to coast uh, in Canada, and especially here in British Columbia, where you're a much-loved sports figure. How has that affected you, and are you still active uh, in uh, Indigenous hockey activities around BC? Yeah, we, we go to schools and we talk to kids and tell them the importance of education. I know sports is a big part of their lives, but like I tell them, uh, you know, I played sports at the highest level, and at 32 years old, I was done. That leaves a long time to live, so it's important to have an education, to have something to fall back on uh, once your uh, playing days are over. 
And does that message resonate? Do you see people uh, uh, sort of nodding in agreement? Of course, it's hard to imagine when you're a kid that somebody's career and work life could be over at age 32. That's a difficult thing for a little kid to wrap their head around, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, they get it. And when we talk to them and uh, myself and Peter Leach, she's, uh, he was an ex-hockey player who, who got an education and uh, ended up with a master's degree. And he really emphasizes the same thing that he had to go back to school once his hockey was over. And, um, you know, the kids, they Google everything. Sure. And they, they really like it, and it's fun to do. Does it surprise you, Gino, when you go out into the community? For example, when you were in hospital at VGH, uh, and, and all of a sudden you look down in the parking lot, and there's thousands of people down there just trying to make you feel better, knowing that you're having a rough ride. Uh, does it surprise you still, in 2022, low these many years after wearing a Canucks uniform, how, how, how positively people receive you in BC? Yeah, I was really... Uh touched and honored by that i i still believe to this day that the prayers people do for you when you're sick make a difference and uh, that's when things started to turn around after that happened so let's talk a little bit about some of your teammates from the glory days of the uh, ojic years 1990 uh, through 98 in vancouver for the induction ceremony next week for example are you expecting some of your buddies for some of your former teammates to show up down there at the convention center uh, Tim Hunter said he might try to make it down, and Jeff Cortnell said he was going to make it down. Kirk McLean is there because he's in part of the That's right. Yep. induction, so there'll be a couple of guys around. I know the alumni... I'm pretty sure they got a table, so there'll be somebody alumni there for sure. You and Pavel Bury were very tight when you two were playing together. You saved his life on more than a few occasions when the tough guys <laughs> were going after him. Is Pavel? You keep in touch? Do you stay? Do you stay in touch with Pavel these yeah, days? Yeah, I talk to him once in a while. He's in Moscow now. He's married, two dogs, three kids. He's, uh, <laughs> he's grown old like all of us. And he's a big deal in Russian hockey too, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think about this edition of the Canucks? We've got a whole new house cleaning taking place in the top levels. We've got new management right from stem to stern and a, a, a fresh approach to what's going to likely be an active draft this soon, uh, this year. Have you been following the Canucks and what do you make of their progress there? They had quite a turnaround year, Gino. Yeah, I go to the, about two games a month and uh, there was uh, once a coaching change was made and the uh, management change was made they turned it around but basically with the same players that that uh, they had in the previous regime so it, it wasn't that uh, uh, the players that they had weren't good enough it's just that they weren't responding to uh, the previous regime and that's right once they got going they had a great record they would have made the playoffs if uh, they started the year with Bruce Boudreau and uh, it's encouraging to see um, I know that uh, Jim Rutherford wants a certain type of players. He said he the other day he wanted some players with some sandpaper. So that'll be fun to watch. Indeed. You see, I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you opened that door. Gene, I, I, Jim Rutherford used the word sandpaper. It's a word that I've used on the radio many times in the past few years, trying to describe what the Canucks are lacking. They need a Gino on their roster. Uh, <laughs> you think they're going to find somebody who can play hockey as you could, keep up with all of the hot, hot pros, and still um, uh, make his presence known when it was important to do so? Yeah, there'll be some players available. Uh, 
um, this summer. I know teams are going to face a cap crunch. I know Calgary looks like they're going to have a hard time uh, keeping all their players. So maybe a player like Milan Lucic might come available. So that'll be interesting to see what happens there. It certainly would. Uh, let's yeah. let's talk a little bit about the playoffs right now. We're down to the final four. You got the Islander, or sorry, the uh, New York Rangers surprising the two-time defending Stanley Cup champ Tampa. They're down two nothing after a couple of games in Madison Square Gardens. And here in the West, well, it's Edmonton and, and Colorado. Well, who do you think's going to be in the final, Gino? <laughs> it's hard. I, I I thought the Tampa Bay would. Uh, would get the best of New York for sure. That's why they play the games. You know, you never know. You run into a hot goaltender like Tampa Bay has, and you never know what's going to happen. Uh, the Rangers can ride them all the way to the finals, and uh, we'll find out after tonight if it's going to be a long series or a short series between the Oilers and uh, the Avalanche. But so far, I think the Avalanche have got the best team in the playoffs. So, ah, so a lot of people, of course, were automatically going Colorado, Tampa Bay. Maybe not this time around. Maybe not, huh? Maybe not. You never know. I mean, uh, New York Rangers' goaltending has been off the charts. And, um, you know, when you have a, a good goalie and you have uh, Adam Fox on D, who's a great D, um, you know, usually goaltending and great D gets you to the Stanley Cup Finals, so... We'll see what happens. It'll right. be a long series, hopefully. And a little sandpaper never hurts either, does it? Chino <laughs> Ojek, congratulations on your induction into the BC Sports Hall of Fame, sir. It is a richly deserved reward for a much-loved British Columbia hockey player. Thanks for getting up early and joining us today, Gino. All right. Thank you. Nice to have you along with us on this first Saturday morning of June. Here's a description of Canada's healthcare system I bet you haven't heard before. Quote, it's an outdated, bloated, bureaucratic, government-controlled monopoly where patients rank well down the list of priorities and healthcare workers are trapped in a regulatory maze over which they have no control. This definition or description of Canada's healthcare crisis is part of a new book entitled Patients at Risk Exposing Canada's Healthcare Crisis, the author of which is Susan Martinuk, a medical researcher, author, columnist, and talk show host. She's also a senior fellow on healthcare policy at the Frontier Center for Public Policy and is our guest here on CKNW Weekend Mornings right now. Susan, good morning. Nice to have you on the program. Welcome. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you with us. That description, a bit of a sobering look at the Canadian healthcare system. But Susan, we've all been through two years of COVID-19 from coast to coast to coast. We've all been abundantly presented with the inadequacies of the Canadian healthcare system. I think more of us now than ever before are at least prepared to hear what you have to say about the, the healthcare system, including your definition, which is not in the least bit complicated. <laughs> no, I think that uh, people's eyes have really been open to what is going on in healthcare. And if the one good thing that comes out of COVID is that, then uh, hopefully we can move forward in a positive in a positive manner and bring about some changes that are needed. Uh, Canada's healthcare system before COVID was fragile; uh, it was dysfunctional, and in fact, there were more than a million people waiting for medically necessary procedures, 
five million Canadians did not have a family doctor. Yep. And there are emergency uh, departments were easily overwhelmed, as we have seen in many news headlines. Hallway medicine has now become commonplace in some hospitals. We have low numbers of doctors, low numbers of specialists, and low numbers of medical school graduates. So all of those things um, suggest that we do not have the best health care in the world, despite what governments and other people uh, continue to tell us. Well, they tell us that because they spend huge, great, astonishing, near criminal gobs of money on health care every year. And perhaps, as you suggest in your new book, that money is being very unwisely spent. Talk to us a little bit. For example, Susan, Canada does spend a lot of money per person on health care compared to other prosperous G7 countries, but we don't have as efficient a system as others do. Where's the breakdown? Well, first of all, what I should say is Canadians spend about $7,000 a year uh, for every adult on health care. And something that people often forget when they're, critic- when they're saying that, you know, we can't have U.S.-style health care, we have to support the Canadian system because it's free, right. they forget that they pay that $7,000 through their taxes, whether or not they even use the system. So, in all, the system uses at least $300 billion a year, and of that, the government pays 65%. Canadians pay another 15% out of pocket, whether it be through monthly fees or for prescriptions, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Canada is probably has the most expensive healthcare system in the world. And in the book, there's um, an interesting study that I bring out and it's a comparison between health or sorry a comparison between Canada and Germany. Okay. Germany has one of the highest ranked healthcare systems whereas Canada has one of the lowest ranked systems. And the study pointed out one glaringly obvious difference and that is that Canada has 10 times the number of healthcare administrators as Germany. And this is even though Canada serves a population of 38 million. Germany serves a population of about double that, uh, 75 million. They spend about the same amount on health care, yet Germany has more physicians, more specialists, more beds, more technology. The only thing we have is more administrators. So, So as I say in the book, it's really hard to find a specialist when you go to a hospital, but chances are quite high that you will run into an administrator. Yeah, well, of course. And keeping in mind that the primary function of any bureaucracy is self-perpetuation. How do you get rid of a bureaucracy that is as firmly entrenched in the system as we have? It's really difficult to say. Um, I think one of the first things that you have to do is decide what kind of a system you want to have and how that system is going to be funded. And then, and only then, can you sort of sort out what what is necessary versus what uh, what can go. Obviously, right now, we've got lots of administrators. We've got low numbers of doctors, low numbers of specialists. Right. So we have to make the decision, then, that we are going to focus on a system that emphasizes doctors, that emphasizes patient care, that emphasizes modern technology and access to that technology. And these are the kinds of things that make successful systems uh, that are running in Europe. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because, of course, the argument comes up. You talk about our system, the Canadian system, regardless of where you are in the country, is a government monopoly. And it is dominated by the unions which uh, own the monopoly along with the government. So when when they're challenged, they will point immediately to the health care system from hell right across the 49th parallel next door in the USA. And they say, Canada, if you want to change the health care system, this is what you're going to get. And that, of course, is silly because it ignores the fact that whether there are successful working models elsewhere in the world that Canada could learn a lot from. You mentioned Germany a few moments ago, Susan. Is that a, is that a, a realistic example for Canadian politicians and policymakers to look at with respect to making good changes? Well, I don't think that we have to mimic any one system, but I think what we have to do is look at the systems that are working. And most of those uh, in the developed world are in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so we have to look at those. And I think then, I mean, we can pick and choose what works and what doesn't work for us. But one of the one of the biggest barriers to making any kind of change is fear mongering. And that is where the unions in particular come out right away and say, oh, it's going to be U.S. style health care. But U.S. in international studies that look at health care metrics and um make comparisons between countries. The only country that has healthcare system uh, that is ranked as low as Canada or even lower in a couple of uh, in a couple of metrics is the United States. So we would be absolutely foolish to attempt to emulate that system. Instead we have to understand that there's a host of different options that are available to develop a healthcare system. And it has to be a healthcare system that works for patients first. I think the so pri- that has I'm, to be our priority. Yes, yeah, Susan, I'm almost out of time, and I, I want to get to one point that scares a lot of Canadians when this argument comes up. And of course, there's a lot of emotional uh, baggage contributing to it. But the notion uh, that this can be achieved, you can take your healthcare card, which is now part of your driver's license, uh, you can take your health card to any provider uh, that needs to that you need to see in order to stay healthy whether that's a privately generated clinic or a publicly funded hospital it doesn't matter your health care card will take care of you uh, and you'll get the prompter service than you are getting now that scares a lot of canadians because they see this as it's the two-tiered system argument Right. That's the that's the other thing that comes out is uh, U.S. style health care. And then um, there's going to be special care for some people. Mm-hmm. And that's a false, uh, again, a false argument, because as soon as other people start using private system, there are going to be lots more openings in the in the public system for people to get care. And again, if we want to have a system that's patient first, it doesn't really matter where they get care. It just matters that they get care. And you talk again in, in the intro, I talked about your, your definition of the Canadian uh, <laughs> healthcare system, an outdated, bloated, bureaucratic, government-controlled monopoly where patients rank well down the list of priorities. Why do you say that? Well, I think that in general, uh, a lot of healthcare seems to be about serving the principle that uh, Canadian healthcare should be free and it should be easily accessible by all people equally. And in trying to follow that and trying to make sure that everybody gets equal healthcare, it just can't happen. So what we get is universal care equals rationed care. Mm-hmm. 
And people don't understand that. People think universal health care equals free health care. It doesn't. It means there's no way we can sustain it monetarily, so universal care has to be rationed care. And that means there's only a limited number of surgeries available each year. There's a limited uh, number of doctors. And the only way we can change that is to get out of out of serving that principle first and instead serve patients first. Also part of the reason you only get 15 minutes on your annual visit to your doctor, if indeed you can find your doctor. Uh, Susan Martinuck, it's a great uh, it's a great read. Patients at Risk, Exposing Canada's Healthcare Crisis. It is a, as I said, it's a bit of a sobering read on a summer Saturday, but it's <laughs> incredibly informative. And again, I think the national appetite for truth in healthcare has never been higher. Thanks ever so much this morning for shedding a little light on a national problem. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.